I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. And I am going to turn the game down because it's too freaking high. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's fabulous episode, I got to chat with uh, Mr. David Epstein. David Epstein, once again, as most of these people, hopefully you know him by now. He is uh, a New York Times bestselling author of the uh, great book I'd recommend to anybody called The Sports Gene, Inside Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Um, he is an investigative reporter for ProPublica. He is a runner. He is a really sweet guy in general. Um, really fun conversation. In today's chat, we got into various pedagogies, various uh, educational approaches from all around the world, what works and what doesn't, and how movement is just so, so valuable in the role of education. Uh, we got into athletes from various cultures, and tribal cultures especially, uh, we got into his writing career, got into all sorts of good stuff. I hope you guys enjoy. The Americans come by and set up all their equipment. They got all this biometric stuff and sensors. And this coach is like, oh crap, like we're not gonna be able to compete with these guys. They got all this crazy equipment. So he kind of freaks out and goes to his guys and says, we don't have any of this stuff. We're not gonna get any of this stuff. We need a different advantage. Go into the start house where they just practice like starting technique. You know, because the sport is kind of like you run with the sled and then you like do the worm onto it. And the start is hugely important. It's basically, it's like, it accounts for like 50% of the variance in the total runtime. And he says, just go in there. I don't care what you do. Just go crazy and don't come out until you figured something out. And so they, they were all, everyone in the world was starting with two hands on the sled at the time. And like an hour later, they come out and they're like, coach, is it legal to start with one hand on the sled? And he's like, flips through the real book, doesn't say it's not. And they're like, well, in that case, we think we just broke all the world records for starts. Thank you so much for tuning in to the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement, the self-care kit, hollow foam roller, screw and lids, two different size map pressure release balls, elastic band, door anchor, all that stuff comes into one little kit. So you are able to get that self-care work going on yourself. Um, what else we got? Working on a A to Z functional movement and then integrating into dynamic movement and how to be functional in every aspect of your life. How to chop carrots, how to ride bikes, how to get in, of a, in out of a car, etc., etc. Very, very important that we can integrate functionality into all aspects of our life. Every moment we are exercising, every moment is an opportunity to get better in your mind and your body. And that is kind of sort of what we get into in today's episode. Quote for today is, uh, this is from the Bible, Mark 10, 25. Uh, and it goes, everyone's heard this already, but I kind of have a rethink on this. Uh, it is easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So I'm borrowing this from Alan Watts, like I do with so many things. And um, what his perspective on this, which makes a ton of sense to me, 
is that the, the, the richness and the inability to get through the, the, the eye of the needle, it could potentially be in relation to us being rich or burdened with programming. Uh, and stuck on preconceived ideas and notions of who we are and how the world is supposed to be and just all of our perceptions that have been ingrained in us from a very young age and then we just blindly accept as being the law laws in general um, I seem to feel especially these days at least are in favor of the people that are creating the laws so I think it's very important for us to recognize or at least to stand back and observe is are the rules in the favor of the community? Are they in the favor of the individual? Or are they in the favor of just the white property owning dude that made the freaking rule in the first place? We gotta observe this stuff. Very important to step back, take a look what's going on there. Thank you so much for tuning into the uh, the review page on the on the podcast. Uh, five star review, por favor, greatly appreciate it. And um, what else? Oh, utilize the Amazon portal on the website, please. On the blog page, right hand sidebar on the podcast page, the blog page. Bookmark that thing. Anytime you make any purchase on Amazon, I end up getting like six and a half percent of it, and uh, it ends up funding this podcast. Keep it advertisement free. Come on now. Um, I think that might be all. I think we might be good. I think we are ready. Oh, I'm about to go to Smith Rock here in a moment to a Highline Festival, which is uh, slinging little bands of webbing between cliffs and walking by them or walking across them. Um, super cool stuff. Check it out on the interwebs. Really, really fun stuff. All right. That is all I have to say. Here we go. To the show. 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 Align Podcast. What were you doing on Africa? I'm curious because I just got back from Africa like like two months ago. And I, what was what was your? Were you just out there reporting specifically, or what was going on out there? Yeah, well, I was out there twice. Um, once I was reporting a story about a guy who named Sammy Wanjiru, who at the time was the best marathoner in the world, actually, and you know, run probably the most incredible race I've ever seen. He he won the 2008 Olympics by pretty much leading from gun to tape, which is unusual in a marathon, especially when it's like 90 degrees and humid in China. Right, I mean, he right. was like zigzagging and stuff just to torment people. Um, and he died under mysterious circumstances uh, in Kenya, in the countryside. And so I went there, one, to report a story about about him, you know, this guy who in the middle of his kind of amazing prime uh, died in a very suspicious and sort of strange way. Um, and then I went back just to report for my book um, about the Kalenjin tribe. So like we, you know, in the U S think of Kenyans as being great marathoners. Yeah. And then you go to Kenya and they're like, wow, those, those Kalenjin people, they're really talented. And that's, it's this minority tribe that actually makes up like 10 to 12% of the Kenyan population. So I kind of went there. I'd always, I was a middle distance runner myself and I'd always wanted to uh, visit them and see the training and things like that and explore the physiology. And so I was there spending some time with, with the Kalenjin people. Cool, man. So, I was researching the Kalenjin people for, I don't, I don't know what, what for exactly, a few weeks ago and getting into the circumcision ceremonies and the, the rite of passage and all that. And I just think it's, it's interesting because in our, I was talking to Daniel Vitalis yesterday and we were talking about the rite of passage, how we as modern Americans and you know, Europeans don't really have anything like that. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I feel like there's, 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 
there's got to be something to that. That feeling of like, ah, today is the day. Did you, <laughs> do you know? Did you like? Did it, you, it, what are you, it is really interesting. Yeah, like lots of, um, you know, native populations have sort of varying degrees, sometimes very brutal initiation rites. Um, actually, Sebastian Younger, who wrote The Perfect Storm, has a book coming out called Tribe, where he talks, which is ostensibly starts being something about PTSD, but really is about differences in sense of community and belonging between native populations yeah. and modern society. Right. And I'm just reading the galley, and it's fascinating because some, you know, you see in certain places purpose for things that seem sort of like maybe like even meaningless brutality, you know, but that that are imbued with a kind of meaning that that can be really valuable for certain societies. Now, that's not to condone, right, certain certain behaviors for people. And, I mean, the circumcision ritual for the Kalenjin has taken on this whole other thing of, of one particular guy who um, is kind of an expert chronicler of Kalenjin running suggested that it might be the sort of the reason for their running prowess, that it, the adults are circumcised, the adult males are circumcised, and they have to basically, like, stand and, like, you know, if they if they flinch or whimper, then they're sort of ostracized from society. Um, and so there is a stoicism to, to the culture. That said, I, I personally don't think it explains the running phenomenon, partly because their women are also world beaters and their women don't have that ritual. And there are a whole lot of brutal initiation rituals um, in a lot of countries and continents uh, that don't produce these great runners. But I do think there is a, something about the stoicism of their culture is certainly helpful for endurance activities. Right. There could be maybe some type of science around the aerodynamics of lacking a foreskin as well. That, you know, I would. I, <laughs> that wasn't to, funny. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So did you, so your experience with working with um, the, the, or being around the, the Kalinjin people, what was your read on their stoicism or their just their 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 way their their mannerisms was it noticeably different than say new york yeah <laughs> yeah it was and i think you know there were a number of differences one of the things that was sort of the most surprising to me i guess i would say um you know i knew a lot about their physiology already and that didn't have to you know you don't have to stay around them to do that right like you go to the research right but one thing I found really interesting was like on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, you could go to this place that like they called the stadium, which is like, it's quite a euphemism for what is basically a dirt oval with like cows and goats grazing on the infield. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, at a sheer cliff, like 4,000 feet over the Rift Valley floor. And you can show up on a Tuesday and they'll just be, you know, there'll be like some guys wearing like Bahrain and Qatar jerseys because they've been like purchased by those countries to, to compete for them. And then there'll be, you know, some, maybe a gold medalist or world champion, guys who have plenty of means that don't have to be there on this dirt track who are there training. And they're happy to have anyone jump in with them. Like, you can jump in and do some intervals if you want. So every once in a while, you'll see, like, a guy with, like, pieces of a tire strapped to his foot or something like that. You know, or just beating down sneakers or, or in some cases, no sneakers. Um, jump in and, and run part of a workout with, like, a gold medalist. And what I found really fascinating about it was... If you saw something like that, like I run a lot and so occasionally you'll be at a track and maybe there'll be kids and they'll run like a little way with you while you're jogging, right? Yeah. But this was um, like people would jump in for a full quarter mile interval, interval with a world champion. And instead of like pacing themselves and jogging or going with them on the jog, they'd like do a full one as best they could and then like, you know, die and slink off to the side. Right. And so I think there was this really sort of – what some people – some people 
portray the idea that talent exists as being a, a negative thing, you know, and that we have to think of everything as only hard work. But I actually thought for the Kalenjin, the idea that there's latent talent in a lot of people was a huge positive because they would come out and say like, well, you know, I know I'm a little older than the age when people should have started things, but like, I'm just going to go out and give it a try with this world champion. And like, maybe, you know, maybe I think I can get better. And the guy who holds the world record in the marathon right now was like, he was a farmer at age 26 or 27, a marathoner named Jeffrey Mutai went to him and was like, you look like you could run. Why don't you come out and work out with me? Can you imagine a 27 year old in the U S farmer being told by a world champion marathoner, like, why don't you just come out and work, work out with me? And he does that, you know, and two, three years later, he holds the world record. And so I think there was this kind of sort of like it's never too late and willing to kind of go for broke mentality. Whereas I saw in college when I was racing 800 meters, American runners were often more oriented toward basically not finishing last, you know, because you don't want to be embarrassed. and That's your social circle you have to go back to. Whereas the Kalenjin runners are like, I'm going to go out on world record pace. And, you know, if I blow up, I'll just drop out like they didn't. They didn't have any self-consciousness about blowing up. They had self-consciousness more about not going for it, which I thought was interesting and different. That's cool, man. And that's so what I see oftentimes in, in modernity, we talk about that a lot, you know, is like this elitism that you'll notice with athletes or scholars or whatever it is. I feel like it's a product of insecurity. You know, it's like when you grow up in, in more of a tribal environment where it's like, no, we all take care of each other. You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, come in. I, I think it, when we, even like how we separate our grades, first grade, second grade, it's all by age. We don't allow children to teach other children so much. It's all the one big stuffy adult and then all the kids are the same size and age and they don't know what the heck anybody's talking about. I feel like that integration piece could be of, of a lot of value. That's an interesting point. And I think, you know, know, again, having that that one track where everybody goes, I think is like a massive, like a great learning experience, right? For someone who just wants to see how, because there's a lot of value in just seeing how people who have gotten to a certain space work, you know, how they approach. Not saying that you'll do the exact same thing, but just kind of, so it's not mysterious. And I, I know the, probably the most dominant, I would say, actually, basically for sure, most dominant sports entity in the history of sports is the Chinese diving team. Um, and I've gotten to see, you know, some of how they train and they'll have these facilities and it's like the the little kids, you know, who have done nothing and like the gold medalists are in the same area. So I think there's this sort of rubbing off of, you know, not only the ambition aspect of it, but how you approach some of these things. I think there's a lot of value in like not stratifying things right. too crazily so that you can sort of have this continuum that makes things seem realistic and impart some knowledge kind of like by osmosis, so to speak. And, right. you know, I think in the classroom, you mentioned some places that are thinking about this have tried to at least make some adjustments. Like MIT, for example, rebuilt some of its classrooms so that it facilitates more peer instruction. So it's not this sort of like, you know, top down from a podium bestowing knowledge upon you, but it's much more kind of people in small groups sort of teaching and coaching each other to mutual understanding. Right. You know, and I don't think that's perfect, but I think it's an interesting uh, and, and worthwhile effort. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is in relation to Jesse Owens and Usain Bolt. I think that's how you say his name. And, you know, how it's like the terrain that Jesse Owens was working with was so dramatically different than what we have today with the synthetic, you know, bouncy rubber or whatever the heck it's made out of. You know, we look back, it's like, whoa, athletes, are, they're, they're getting way, way better at sports. You know, we're just faster, smarter, everything. But you look back and the people 
you know, I mentioned I just got back from Morocco, you know, and I had a skateboard with me. And I give my skateboard to these kids, like surfer kids, whatever. And they would jump on this thing barefoot, busting kickflips, just like, whoa, like, they don't have this high level, super awesome skating shoe or whatever it is. They're just like, it's just what we got. And then what ends up happening with that is the intelligence of their body, their nervous system, neuromuscular system ends up becoming more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a potential loss that we, that we end up having when we outsource our intelligence to technology. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I mean, it's, and it's not to say that athletes haven't gotten better, but I think we often ignore a lot of these influences of technology because it's, it's an interaction. You mentioned that. I mean, the Jesse Owens, Usain Bolt example I use just because it's so simple, right? Is surfaces that people run on now are so highly calibrated to, to return energy in certain ways that athletes are not as different as, as we think they are in some cases, you know, and as margins of victory are getting smaller and smaller, those little technological differences, um, become in many cases bigger differences than the athletes themselves but in in some cases it really it changes it has this really intimate interaction with the athletes like when tennis rackets got much lighter when strings changed and and they went to graphite the average height and limb proportions of elite tennis players changed like overnight because suddenly serving you know and and well serving mainly um became so incredibly important that you wanted those longer levers and a larger is called brachial index, larger ratio of the forearm to your total arm. And so in some cases, these equipment changes cause like a feedback that requires the athletes to change. The Fosbury flop, which everyone knows, you know, going backwards over the high jump bar. When that, when Dick Fosbury sort of, which is a cool invention story because he, it's, it's very obvious from a physics perspective why that works. Like you're, if you curl your center of mass is in the middle of the curl so you can go under the bar, well, your center of mass can go under the bar while you go over the bar. And so like sports scientists have said like, well, yeah, that's so obvious why that works. But of course, nobody told Dick Fosbury that ahead of time. They were like, why are you doing it like that? And he had to just find it through self-experimentation, which was pretty cool and feeling out his own body. Um, but after that, in the next eight years, the average height of elite high jumpers raised like five or six inches because it became such an advantage to start with a higher center of mass. So sometimes these innovations really, really change a lot of the underlying fundamentals of a sport. Right. Yeah. And and going back with the the tribal perspective on things, I think new creativity ends up manifesting in places that are, again, less judgmental, more just free flow, more creative. You know, we we see we see creativity end up being uh, stimulated by things like random new movements you know there was a there was a study i was looking at where they, they had people they had two groups of people there say it was like a hand-eye coordination thing and they just had them tracing all one group doing crazy tracing all over the place and then the other group doing just these really linear straight lines and then they said all right now you get this newspaper i want you to come up with as many creative things that you can do with this newspaper as possible what they found was that the group that was doing crazy stuff with their with their limbs ended up having more creative inspiration to work with this. So I wonder if there could be something, if we did get out of that box of all I do is I, I swing the golf club. I just nail this swing. Maybe you would come up with some new inspiration if you took up ping pong or you just did something different. No, I, I, I'm a huge proponent of that. I mean, you're thinking of, you're talking about something I think about a lot lately. And let me share like a quick kind of a cool story that I came across recently. That's, um, maybe kind of one straightforward example of that where in a sport that people don't really know called skeleton, you slide face first yeah. down the ice, the winter Olympics. And, uh, 
there was a, a coach, a, a British guy who was at the time a coach of a Canadian team, um, you know, a couple Olympics ago. I was coaching his team, and they're they're in Calgary, I think, training. And the Americans come by and set up all their equipment. They've got all this biometric stuff and sensors. And this coach is like, oh, crap. Like, we're not going to be able to compete with these guys. they got all this crazy equipment. So he kind of freaks out and goes to his guys and says, we don't have any of this stuff. We're not going to get any of this stuff. We need a different advantage. Go into the start house where they just practice, like, starting technique. You know, because the sport is kind of like you run with the sled and then you, like, do the worm onto it. And, and the start is hugely important. It's basically, it's like, accounts for like 50% of the variance in the total runtime. Yeah. And he says, just go in there. I don't care what you do. Just go crazy and don't come out until you figured something out. Right. And so they, they were all, everyone in the world was starting with two hands on the sled at the time. And like an hour later, they come out and they're like, coach, is it legal to start with one hand on the sled? And he's like, flips through the real book. Doesn't say it's not. And they're like, well, in that case, we think we just broke all the world records for starts. Right. And so they keep it secret, and they debut it and blow everybody away, and then, of course, everybody does it now. But it was like literally these guys who've been training for years for one technique, just being given a green light to go in there and go nuts and play, yeah. revolutionized the sport in like an hour. Right. You know, it's so funny. It just, it just to me hammers home that idea of sort of being stuck without even realizing you're being stuck and how powerful that green light just to go a little crazy can be if someone's, you know, not going to judge you for it or even going to encourage you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's like necessity breeds invention or what is that what it is? Is that how that goes? <laughs> Mother invention. Mother, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that it's it's interesting where we are, we're in such a place of, of abundance where it's like, yeah, like, get every kid an iPad and get everything. It's like, we're give them all this stuff. And I think probably that's really great that we're giving kids iPads. But, you know, I wonder if there is a potential to kind of be able to get more out of our children, more out of our athletes, everything in general, by actually maybe taking away, <laughs> you know, and saying, let's just go out into the woods and we're going to do math with sticks. You know, I think that there's so much other potential things that can come out of that. I don't know. It's just I put up sometimes when I give like talks, I put up these statistics showing the odds. It's called the odds ratio, which is like odds ratio of three means something three times as likely as normal to happen. You know, one means it's normal odds of happening. And I put up odds ratios of a kid becoming a pro athlete in a certain sport based on the size of his hometown. Yeah. And the more the more like rigid and technical and narrow and, and even competitive that youth sports have gotten in larger cities, the more the odds of kids from these smaller towns where they're not, where they're playing, a, doing a bunch of different sports, you know, general kind of physical literacy, the coach is like not a technical expert, but he's like a, a personal mentor who has a keys to the gym and will let them in. The odds ratios have gone way up from these small towns, like even basketball, where we always think of guys coming from the big inner city, not, not anymore. Now they're coming from these smaller places where kids follow a little bit more organic development path. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's like when you're building a house, you want to create the structure with a wide variety of materials. You know, it's like you get to the end of the house and you, you start laying the trim on. It's just it looks just great. You know, and I think it's easy for us with our with our kids to think like, let's just get them to that trim level quick, you know, because it looks so good. <laughs> and you know, some of the steps that are there, right? You feel like, OK, people have done it. We know like what the finishing touches are. So the so the 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 desire is to go straight to those. I, I was talking, I had lunch a little while ago with a guy who's the kind of what they call the performance pathway director for UK cycling, which is, you know, has been over the last couple of years, I'd say the best in the world. Mm. And he was saying the problem he's having right now 
is that Chris Froome, who's been one of their best cyclists, he said parents come in with, with you know, talented kids and they want their kid to do what Chris Froome is doing right now. Not what Chris Froome was doing when he was nine or 11, which included like some mountain biking and just like some trail riding and all this exactly. variety of stuff, right? Yeah. And so they just want what he's doing right now for their kid to do right now. But their kid isn't, isn't Chris Froome. He's not a finished product, right? He hasn't laid all those... Yeah those layers between yeah man and that's i think it's it's interesting we have i think it's the same thing in the pharmaceutical drug industry like we have likely have the best of intentions you know it's like we want to cure the thing or whatever it is you know we want to get straight get straight i I don't know too many people in the industry so i just assume i'm too optimistic you know but it's like we want to we want to help you know, and I think that that's what happens with, with children of like forcing them into these programs before they're developing all of their full hand-eye coordination potentials. You know, teach them to dance, teach them to deadlift, teach them to run, teach them to climb a tree. You know, all of those, you start layering that fabric on, you have an integrated matrix for them to start to pull from, right? And that gets into the, the 10,000 hour rule thing, which I think is, I agree, is, is, is bogus. You know, is like, it, it can't, it, it's completely dependent on how intricate the matrix of the individual, how intricate they've created their matrix. So if you give someone that's a blank slate and is not athletic at all, it's probably going to take them 30,000 hours. Yeah. You know, but if you use something that's, that's been moving well, you know what I'm saying? Is yeah. That... yeah, no, totally. And I mean, I think that's been kind of one of the pernicious outgrowths of the, the 10,000 hours has been this idea that there's this like hyper specific sort of narrow way that you have to specialize people really early. And I don't think, I don't think the science supports that. The only, I think it's an advantage to have the kind of breadth and general skills and a repertoire that you draw on eventually. Um, but the only disadvantage, it's only a disadvantage to have some breadth and general learning and creativity to the extent that people who run like youth sports leagues force it to be where they'll say like, if you're not doing what I say at age five, then you don't get to be a part of it at age six or seven or eight or nine. And I think a lot of people have financial interests in youth sports that have forced them to, you know, maybe with good intentions, implement systems that are not actually, you know, that maybe will produce the the highest achieving 10 year old athlete, but doesn't, uh, doesn't produce the best 20 year old or 30 year old. athlete. Yeah. So what about for older folks or non, non children, you know, it's easy to, to put all the attention on the children. Meanwhile, like my fat ass hasn't moved in three years, you know, what about the children? You know? It's like, I, I think that there's still a, a, a gaping flapping void with almost every adult that I see where they lack a movement foundation. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, I think even some that had, you know, it's like you can't just let it atrophy for 30 years or 40 years and expect it to still be there, right? Like maybe you'll have some residuals, but like nothing stays if you, you know, if you you leave it forever. Like maybe you still know how to ride a bike, but you're not going to be as good as when you're actually doing it. And I think, I think there are a lot of hurdles to overcome there. Some of which are that I've noticed sort of in people who don't have a long history of kind of general physical activities. Um, not only is there some self-consciousness, but there's also this like fear of going hard or, you know, discomfort or worry that you like shouldn't be doing certain movements that might hurt you. And and it's true. You you may get, you know, if you work out enough and you do enough sports, like everyone gets injured at some points. Right. But like you're, those problems are generally very, very small compared to the ones of physical inactivity that those breed. And, you know, so I, I think we just have to help people like, give it a try and I don't know what the best ways to help people get over those sorts of things are but I think it's doable and I think um, 
we have to help people take away some of that, like, no, I can't do like a high intensity interval because isn't it dangerous to start that way? Like for the most part, it's, it's actually really probably not like the things about, you know, your knees will give out if you run a lot. It's like this, it doesn't, it, you know, bone grows in response to stress the way that muscle does. And so a lot of these fears of I'll be injured, I can't start now, things like that, you know, if anything, I can only do this sort of constant, like very moderate elliptical for blah, blah, blah. I think are not founded, but they seem to be really deeply ingrained in people's minds. Yeah, yeah. And and along with that, I think you mentioned fear a few times. I think that it's fear of being seen. You know, it's like, well, back in my back in my football days, I threw a perfect spiral. You know, and you're just like, it's got to be that. And then there's this 10-year, 20-year gap. And because you have that fear of either being embarrassed from other, someone seeing you or you seeing yourself, yeah. you end up digging that hole deeper and deeper and deeper until eventually you, you can't get out of it. Now, I think if yeah. we could just not take ourselves so flipping seriously. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> you know? Realize, like, they'll get better. Like, you, you may be terrible, you know, to start, but, like, you'll get better. Even with, like, weights, right? Like, if you're at the beginning of the learning curve, what you have to look forward to is just the neuromuscular gains or you're going to get, like you know, you're going to be getting a lot better quickly. I mean, I had this with my, I'm recently married and my wife had like no real history of physical activity. And so like when, you know, we started dating, I take her to a gym and I'm like, okay, we're here, go do your thing. I'll go do my thing. And I realized I took for granted like a lifetime of sports, you know, right. and where you can't just throw somebody, it's like telling them to speak another language and just dropping them off there. Yeah. So then we kind of went backward, tried a bunch of different stuff with her. Now she's gotten like totally addicted to this thing that we call Brooklyn body burn. It's, like, it's kind of like, I don't know what to call it. Like, it's almost like high interval Pilates sort of or something like that. And like her, and I see it show up in like everything she does now from like not bumping into doorways anymore to like if she comes for a run with me, she's she's better at it. Just like, it's been amazing. It took a couple. It took a couple of years for her to find something she was comfortable with, you know. And there was that initial hump of self consciousness, and then she just got totally addicted, you know. And, and you know it when someone comes home that one from some kind of workout. And they're like, "Let me show you what I did. I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this." And I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> you found your thing, you know." But it was it was a challenge, and it really made me conscious of the fact that you, you know, people like me and you, you know, well maybe maybe less less you because you're in the in the business of, of helping people but I certainly took for granted this base of knowledge I had from a lifetime of sports experience you really have to meet people where where they are yeah yeah absolutely and then so uh, with that I think that uh, skill to practice is practice you know <laughs> like, like there there's there's way more and less effective ways to get into a really deep deliberate practice you know i think that's once again it's like we're in a culture of adhd or whatever you know bs you know and i think that maybe we're not equipping our people you know in the united states or what have you with the right tools to really pick up skills you yeah. know I mean, I, I think one mistake that a lot of people make is this value on just sort of time spent over everything else, right? That's another yeah. sort of good and bad of the 10,000-hour rule where it puts this focus on just time, 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 time. But really, yeah. you know, quality of practice, right? Like you, you don't you don't have to be doing something for, for two hours. In fact, you might be better off having a short burst where you're actually engaged and, and actually sort of learning how to do something and, and being challenged in that kind of optimal push sort of way, whereas something that's a little harder than you can do, but not so hard that it's like jumping over a building. And so I think we'd be better off 
you know, I think the single biggest mistake that like the general work person who works out makes is they just go to the gym and they do something like moderate to moderate easy for a long time. They do the same thing every day. One, it's boring, but two, it's like, if you're lifting the same weight, the same number of times every day, you might not slide backward, but you're not getting better, right? You need to, you need to figure out how to change things and stress things. And I think we should help people focus a little more on their quality of what they're doing as opposed to just like piling up the hours. Also introducing games, you know? And so it's like, that's one of the, that's one of the things is when you, when you swing a baseball bat into a baseball, you immediately have this cause and effect of, whoa, I really cranked that one. Or, oh, I totally duffed it. Like missed that completely. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas what we're doing in these ridiculous gym scenarios, no feedback, complete, usually crummy form. And just, Ugh, just grinding through these weights like it's masochistic it's really sad to, to witness and i think that like if we could introduce more games and have a little bit more feedback of knowing when i'm doing well and when i'm not once again i think there'd be a big shift yeah yeah i mean that's one of the great things about some sports and games right is they, they have this built-in instant feedback like exactly. if you look at when i was in brazil you see like kids don't brazil produces you know more elite soccer players in any other country and the kids aren't even playing soccer. They're playing futsal. This like yeah. game, you know, balls small, it's on the ground and they're playing with like whatever little corner of whatever alley or beach that they happen to have today. Surface is all different. You know, ball takes weird bounces. So it's never quite the same game twice. Yeah. And most of what they ever learn in their skill development career is there. It's not like once they get into the pipeline with Barcelona or whatever it is, right? It's from these games, but you get this instant feedback, right? Everything you do, like, you know, ball went in or out, or like you got by somebody or you didn't. And that instant feedback, I think everything we know, you know, in sports science suggests that's really important, right? Like the opposite of what most people have at their job, which is you get your annual performance review and then you exactly. get another one a year later, which is so useless. I mean, there, there's amazing work in the Netherlands showing that like one of the most important skills for developing other skills is self-regulatory learning, you know, sort of taking accountability for your own learning and delayed feedback is kind of disastrous for it. So even in the academic setting, these kids who are identified as, as, you know, good athletes who kept improving, if they would take a test and get results and feedback back two weeks later, it was like so far out of mind by that point. Right. Like they, they need feedback so they can iterate and iterate and kind of find their way to the path. And sometimes the practice that makes you the best over a single session, like where you, you seem to master something just by doing repetitive over a single session isn't actually the kind that's most retained, you know, where you incorporate yeah. sort of more variability and differences. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's, um, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. It's like one of my favorite little mantras to, to focus on with, with every aspect of your life, you know? And I think that if you can find that joy in the things that you're doing, then that's sustainable. You know, but I, I wonder, I think too many times we beat ourselves against, against the head trying to force ourselves to do this thing. And it's like, oh, maybe this thing's not for you. Maybe it's okay to just quit, you know, <laughs> or maybe it's, you know, or make a game out of it or something, you know, you get no, smiling. I, I mean, I'm all for like, if people are trying to get into something sustainable, try a bunch of different stuff, like right. invest some time up front to try a bunch of different stuff. Because if you're in it for the long haul, like you want to find something that fits your proclivities and something that you're going to enjoy. Have you seen this? This just reminded me of this video of like a Swedish subway stop where they were trying to get people to take the stairs more instead of the escalator. No. And people had tried different things. And then this one group 
did, you know, installed some electronics and some covers on the stairs that made it like a piano keyboard. So if you stepped on a stair, it would play a different note. Yeah. And like yeah. they just put a video camera up and you can see like every almost everyone just switches from the uh, escalator to the stairway. And not only switches the stairway, but they're going up and down and they're jumping around on it and all this stuff. You're like, yeah. so clearly they didn't need the escalator to get up. The st- even the older, even people with like cane are going up the stairs. Right. It's just, just that little bit of fun. Just instantly yeah instantly changed it and when you look at that it's so incredibly inefficient (laughs) and that's why it's great you know it's like we're we're so goal driven and we gotta get to the thing you end like we're gonna die you know you we only got x amount of years left like who gives a crap about the stupid goal you know, it's like if you can be playing piano with your feet your whole life and then die, like that's way, way better than just grinding it out, you know, and then you finally get there and, you're, and inevitably you will be disappointed. You know, everyone successful that I've ever talked to, they say like, oh, yeah, you get to the point where you, you got the goal and you're kind of bummed because now you don't know what to go for. I mean, I, I would argue anyway, even like that, that kind of more physical activity and inefficient, you know, fun that looks inefficient, things like that will will generally only help people anyway, That's aside it. from the goal, right? It's, nobody's using their time like perfectly efficiently anyway. Right. And I don't think people who are, you know, healthier and having a little more joy in their daily life, I'd, I'd be, I'd ha- it would be very hard to convince me that, you know, the, the time they take to do that is going gonna, is gonna to detract from their other, other goals. Sure. It's like sleep. You know, it's like, well, if I only sleep for three hours, that means I get an extra, you know, six hours a day to do bullshit. You know, it's right. like, but all the bullshit you do now sucks. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like, you know, NBA teams are now viewing like sleep as this tactical weapon. It's like right. they're holding so much emphasis on like sleep consultants and like how can we get guys to sleep more and all this. Kind of, they're not. They're not trying to get them to practice more. I mean, those guys already have obviously a certain level of skill, but I think in the elite sports world is starting to come along, come around to how critically important sleep is. And hopefully that'll, you know, trickle through the, the rest of society. Yeah. Cause I, I think people, even when they, even when they know it's serious, they kind of don't totally take it seriously, sure. you know? And, and even if they're getting in bed on time, they're like, you know, the blue, they got the screens going and things like that. It's just a lot. It's tough. It's a lot of disruptions. Yeah. I'm curious how uh, writing the writing in general has affected your life. You know, so how uh, one thing I think is pretty interesting, the way that you collate information or put put the your, your info together is really, really impeccable. You know, I'm curious, like, what's your your, your process with that? Is it OK if we kind of go into the hood? And... <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I had like a good explanation for it. I mean, I, I was training to be a scientist before and I kind of got into writing in, in, a, in a weird way. So I wasn't like, you know, like, well, I guess I thought I'd be a scientist who writes. So I guess I always did love writing. But yeah. Um, you know, I tend to, it's, it's lucky for me that I've progressed to a place where I do sort of longer projects and, and I'm not kind of writing all the time because I tend to have a sort of messy brain. Mm. It's pretty digressive. Like I'll get down some rabbit hole. And so, I mean, for the first year of my book, I didn't even, I basically didn't write anything. All I did was I'd go, go to this university library at, at Columbia that had, it would be simultaneously logged into all the journals that they had subscriptions to. And I would just start like reading things I was interested in and then going through the citations and going to something else. And maybe I would do a hundred papers a day. I'd sit there all day, literally. My goal was to, 
to get through 10 papers a day for a year, every day. And some days I wouldn't get through that many, but some days I'd get through 50, you know, if I went to the library all day. And so I just did this like incredible wide net casting, you know, and was totally confused and totally mixed up and used that to kind of lead me to interviews. And then eventually certain concrete points started to coalesce in my brain. And then, then I had a heck of a time trying to, you know, to, to get those back to where I could write them in a sensible way. But the net I cast initially was just incredibly broad and I just kind of followed my nose and my interest. And that meant that the, that the project took a while, you know, and I was fortunate to have that time. Um, and I, I don't know what some of the, like, you know, Apple's searchlight function or spotlight, like helps me like crazy because I title things in all kinds of weird ways so I can find different types of things. Um, and I don't know if it's, you know, I guess I'm, I'm able to hold like a fair amount of things in my memory, but I also find that I don't think I have like any special memory. I think I find that as I'm pursuing certain topics, whether I have a question or something starts to make sense for me, the information sort of starts to come into context where I'm, I'm like, you know, where it makes it easier for me to remember, not like coming into a full story, but either sort of coming into a story or into just other developing questions. And I just try to kind of sort those in my head. And it's really, really messy. Like I'm horribly inefficient. Like it's lucky for me that some of my longer projects have worked out because it would be a problem if they didn't, because I'm so messy that I'm, that I'm inefficient with them. Mm. And I've, I used to really be, you know, a lot of self-reproach over that, but, um, now I think I've, I've given myself some slack on it and said, like, maybe it's not just uh, maybe it's not just a defect I have, but maybe this kind of wide ranging um, search is part of, you know, what helps me find some different things sometimes, too. Yeah. So yeah. I still think some of it's a little bit of a defect. <laughs> like, I wish I could be a little bit more organized. But really, I just cast this incredibly wide net until certain topics start to coalesce. And then I sort of search a little bit more around those and discard other ones. Yeah, one of the quotes that I, I don't know who I got it from, but I, I used it a lot is the reason that I write is to understand what the heck I'm thinking. You know? Totally. I mean, <laughs> I, have, I have some, you know, friends and acquaintances and things like that that are probably so annoyed with me because I'll write these like really long digressive emails sometimes about a topic. And it's, and I don't want them to feel like they have to respond with long digressive emails, but it's literally me like thinking my own way through my head, like just yeah. thinking with my fingers. And I think maybe that's common for a lot of writers or maybe some people think by, you know, drawing or what, or, you know, or singing or whatever it is they do or talking, you know, writing is a, is a way that I really kind of think through things, you know? Yeah. And it- no, go oh, on. Sorry, I was going to say with regard to the structural process of writing, you made me think of something. There is like one more, concrete piece of advice I could maybe give for people who write one of the best pieces of advice that was given to me. I once, I had a friend who was doing some video and I had to learn a little video editing because he got carpal tunnel. And so he asked me to, so he would talk me through the actual editing process. And so I learned a little video editing while doing that. And I realized what you do is you get all this video, right? Just like when you're a, a print reporter, you get what we call string, just like all your info. And then you cut it up into these chunks. You watch it all, you cut it to chunks. You make an in point and an out point for each little chunk, and then you just put them in the right order. Yeah. And I think of writing in the same way. It's like use the line. one thing when I was at Sports Illustrated that was really helpful is they use line spaces a lot, which are not chapter breaks, but they're kind of breaks between sections that allow you to not have to make a really good transition, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think of it just like film. Is I have all my string, I cut it into the chunks I want to use, and then it's just a question of arranging them with different line spaces. And so it helps me to kind of think of it like film editing, so that it doesn't feel like this 
one gigantic string of things I have to put together, but just these discrete pieces that I have to arrange. And so I look for that stuff in people who I think are masters. Like I, I think like Wes Craven is a master, um, you know, of structure because I'll watch some of his films and sometimes the material is like stupid, right? You're like, this material is ridiculous. And yet with ridiculous material, sometimes he can leave on a certain out point that will get me through even more ridiculous commercials and want me to come back to the next endpoint. And I'm like, if you can do that with that material, right? Don't even care about it and it's kind of silly. Then like that means you accomplish something structurally in terms of how you organize your in and out points. Yeah, there's a Mark Twain quote that everybody knows of, I, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I had to write you this big ass letter. You know? <laughs> I'll be using big ass letter, but you know, it's like and that's the thing. That like you know, Bruce Lee and all the masters of martial arts and stuff. And you talk about like, cutting away the superfluous, you yeah. know. And it's like that's that's the thing. You know, you get a bunch of shit on the table, and then you start. You know, and that and that's it comes back into the athleticism is we're not allowing our kids to put a bunch of shit on the table, yeah. right? We're giving them a snow globe and saying, "There you go, you're." You're just gonna know. You're just gonna know every in and out of this snow globe. <laughs> like, well, we treat self-development like in this cookie cutter model. You know, and we know things. The more we learn about physiology, the more we learn there also isn't one exact. Like, people have to learn how to use their bodies, yeah. not how to use somebody else's body. You know, because yeah. there are similarities, but there are also some differences. So I think this, the cookie cutter kind of approach is. You know, if we take a cookie cutter approach, whether it's diet, you know, whether it's training, and then we tell people who are doing the same thing, you know, people are confused why it's not working for them. Like maybe they shouldn't be doing the exact same thing that the other people are. Like we know that some people respond better to a certain training regimen than others. So there has to be some sort of, you know, guidance and autonomy. That's why I think coaches are, or, you know, people who help you with training are so important or can be so important because they kind of walk hand in hand with you on that voyage to sort of figure out who you are and, and what environment is best for your physiology. Yeah. Yeah. A really yeah. good teacher. Good teacher doesn't teach you facts they teach you how to learn you know and, and that's the big thing it's like if you find a really good teacher it's like oh my god like double their pay you know because they're going to change the world we've seen the assumption in a lot of like pro sports that the best performers will be the best teachers and that has often not been the case at all right like basketball teams will take somebody who was a great point guard because they you know they're court smarts and then they're like well they'll be a great coach and then it's a disaster yeah. like teaching is a whole skill, you know, unto itself. Yeah. I'm curious, do you, curious, you, do you use, use uh, Scribner? It sounds like, or, or some type of program like that where you are able to slide things around? You know, I started using Scribner, but I didn't start at the beginning of my last book. So I, um, and once I was sort of into it, I was like, I, I, I don't want to start with something new. My wife who wrote a book did use Scribner and really liked it. I probably should. Yeah. Um, I may. I may. I may do that for my next book, but I'm not sure yet. Okay. What what did you use if you don't don't mind me asking? I didn't use anything fancy. I mean, I used Yeah, no, I didn't really use anything fancy. I mean, I just basically I would always I gave every I mean, I have thousands of PDF papers, right? And I would give all of them two titles, one with a real title with the author name and then the others with things that I thought I would search hmm. and just organize them into folders and I kept what I called a master thought list where as kind of thoughts and connections came to me, I would just put them down again with terms that I thought I could word search. And then I relied on Spotlight, on Max Spotlight, without which I literally could not have done any of this stuff because I wouldn't. I needed to find certain things like fifty times a day, literally. Yeah. Um, you know, and go back to it and back to it and back to it. And I made all my PDFs word searchable, so I could search in the text, and Spotlight could search in the text. And I just did it that way, which again is probably horribly inefficient. Um, but 
yeah, I don't know. That's that's what I did. Yeah, well, Robert Robert Green, he has a, a horribly inefficient way of doing it. That, that's. Do you know about his strategy? No, I don't. Okay. Um, well, I'll probably misrepresent it, so <laughs> I'll do my best. But he does little note cards, from my understanding, from what, I, what I've like heard on podcasts or something. But he does a bunch of little note cards and essentially does the same concept of Scrivener, which is a, a writing program where you're able to essentially slide things, different titles or ideas around. You don't have to keep it in place and like research it. But he does that exact same thing just with handwritten note cards. And one of the, one of the, the parts about that that's, that's interesting is sometimes by doing something the most inefficient way possible, that's the only way to really learn it. You know, we're so inundated by so much information. And it's like, I am the smartest man in the world. I just don't remember anything. You know? <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope there's some benefits to my inefficiency. I, th I think so, man, because you get to go back into it and you get to really imprint that into your into yourself and you care more. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, that. Yeah. were you going to say Definitely, something? As you described, it sounds a lot like John McPhee, too. So back in my past life, I was a geology grad student and John McPhee is like, along with now Catherine Schultz, the most renowned geology writer ever. And what he said his process was basically he'd get all his info He'd put a bunch of note cards on like a board and he'd, he'd write down every scene or quote on one note card and then he'd just put them in some order and then put them in a stack and then he'd sit them next to his typewriter and then he said he'd sit on his back and groan for two weeks and then he'd start just like typing them in order. But all he did, you know, was put these stuff in order that same kind of way. Yeah, I have so much respect for the people that wrote books pre software programs like this that put it all together for you and pre being able to just copy paste and it is just like. Man, it's so. I mean, it's it's got. I haven't written any books yet, but I'm I'm in the process, you know. But it's like it's in comparison to the past, it seems like it's just gotten light years easier. Again, a lot like athletics. Is that yeah. is that an over? Am I stepping beyond boundaries there? Is that? I think that's true. I think the technology has made a huge. I mean, there were. I'm not sure I could have gotten to all the scientific papers I needed for my book in 10 years if we didn't have some of the technology that we had. I never would have taken on the project. It, it just would have been impossible. It would have taken my whole life, right? So it's really allowed certain types. And I've seen this in other writers and other, other work that's kind of bringing different disciplines together and lots of research together. It just couldn't have been done before. Mm. It just you, you would have spent your whole life like just tracking down all the stuff, right, yeah. much less organizing it. So I think it's made a huge difference yeah. and, and allowed us to do work that just couldn't be done before. And what you see with that is you see a lot more crappy books coming out. You know? That's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean, the one the one thing about the proliferation of science and journals in general is that it's if people don't if they don't care to evaluate methodology whatsoever, then it's getting like a little bit where you can kind of find whatever you want and back it up if you're really willing to cherry pick completely. Yeah. Um, and that's not great, but. <laughs> Um, I think the scientific community actually should try to be a little more, well, a lot of them are, but there's just both the kind of complex of journals and publications and the pressures on academics has led to publication of a lot of science that isn't true, basically. So now they're in the midst of what they're calling the replication crisis, right. uh, because a lot of science is not replicating. Right. It ends up being, it ends up being kind of more like just uh, like branding, you know, it's like, I got to get a book out there because it's got like... I, it's, I'm not yeah. I'm not legitimate unless I have a book. So you just kind of force it out. Whereas back in the day, it's like I got this idea that's gonna it's gonna kill me if I don't get it out of me. 
Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's hilarious to me now that like a book is a calling card. Like I meet people all the time. They're like, I want to write a book. And that's great. I love books. Yeah. Love them. They do have that mystique for me at the same time. Like most people's books are absolutely just a labor of love. And most people aren't buying books anymore. Right. So it's not, it's not always the best way to get your ideas out there anymore. Like sometimes, you know, I got lucky and the book got out to more people than I, than I thought it would for sure. Um, but I think it's interesting when I go into Barnes and Noble and see like how many new books there are. I'm like, who, who are all these people? <laughs> like, who's as stupid as I am to be doing this? Right. Is there anything that you could attribute to your? Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it luck at all, but to your to your to your There's luck of luck getting out there. Definitely some luck. Like somebody could have come out with like a you know genetics of vampires book the same day, and then I would have been screwed. Right. <laughs> but. Yeah, I don't know. I can't totally explain it. I mean, I know I was fortunate to to get interest from some big outlets like the Science Times, the New York Times reviewed it, you know, and I got on Fresh Air on NPR, which is really um, not only a great show with great interviewers, but also um, I think really appeals to people who are interested in books like me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, from some of those things combined with, I was at Sports Illustrated at the time, they excerpted the book, you know, I guess it got a little bit of a, a little bit of a ball rolling and, right. and to even more than I thought, people who are interested in performance generally, I think are interested in performance, whether that's from a doctor or a pilot or, you know, a finance person or whatever it is and, and really want to grab, you know, little ideas from here and there and, and maybe felt that I kind of synthesized a lot of research in a way that would save them a lot of time but still impart some things they're interested in, but it still requires some luck. And I, and I don't, um, I don't pretend to understand like why some work and some don't. Sometimes I read wonderful books that didn't get, didn't go bonkers and not so good books that, that, you know, became crazy bestsellers and hmm. not totally sure what that calculus is. So when you were doing it, you didn't have any anticipation of like, this, this is going to be a New York times bestselling book. Absolutely not. Absolutely what? not. In, in fact, I, I thought my mother was going to like buy a dozen copies and invite me to her, <laughs> which she did, by the way. That's but, right. um, but, and I think I have a fair claim to that. Like people sometimes tell me they think I'm, you know, I'm fibbing when I say that. But I was, when the book came out, I was like in the process of changing jobs, which was terrible. And I never would have been doing that had I thought like suddenly the book was going to require a lot of my attention. So I think I have a historical record pointing to the fact that like I didn't actually expect to like need to be able to, I thought like, okay, now the book's done, I'm done working on it. Now I can like take a little break. And then like, it actually got more busy. Right. After cool. Awesome, man. Well, I love the book. Thanks so much for, for, for writing it. I had a great time reading it. Um, how do people learn more about you, find the book, find you? The, the sportsgene.com has uh, info about the book. They can follow me on Twitter. You know, I tend to tweet things that, that, a wide variety of things because it's Twitter and what point is it unless you're acting a fool and tweeting out random stuff but um, but also things that people who are interested in performance and sports science might be interested in and so yeah you can find me in those places cool I just tweet various pictures of my cats that's that's probably that's great <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just I hate cats I love it alright so thanks so much for coming up <laughs> I appreciate Pleasure. it see you brother 
Nine Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.